Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest today is Victor Riccardi. He is an assistant professor of financial management at Goucher College in Baltimore, Maryland, and he is a specialist in the field of behavioral finance. Welcome to the show, Victor. Oh, thanks for having me. I always enjoy uh, talking about this exciting new topic. Let's just start with a little bit of your background, your academic background, uh, before we get into the, the details of what uh, behavioral finance is all about. Um, I've done research on the psychology of risk, and also I, I teach classes in behavioral finance, investments, uh, corporate finance, and the psychology of money. So, And also I, I had started off my career as a mutual fund accountant, so I have a balance of not being a purely academic but also um, a little bit of a real-world experience so I can at least have an um, appreciation for the novice investor and how they uh, are uh, experiencing the current markets. So let's just start with a little bit of behavioral finance, what the basics of behavioral finance are, how long has it been around, and how does it uh, differ from what we would call traditional financial uh, management? I would say, especially since the financial crisis, um, this behavioral finance has really caught the eye of, of many uh, financial planners and, and, and investment professionals. But I would I would say approximately has about a 25-year, 30-year history uh, uh, established in the psychology side, and then uh, a, a very small number of finance academics in the in the late 80s or in the mid 80s started to t- take the work in psychology and, and apply it to finance. And then, really, since the late 90s, you've seen a uh, dramatic increase in the amount of research in this area. Um, three major themes in behavioral finance are that investors uh, tend to be overconfident. Um, another major theme is that people use what's known as heuristics, and what a her- heuristics are is people are assumed to make decisions based on um, mental shortcuts. In other words, instead of uh, ma- always making the best decisions, sometimes we uh, suffice. And another major piece of the literature shows that people tend to be loss-averse, uh, meaning they... Uh, they feel a loss is twice as painful as an equivalent gain. And that goes against the grain of what's known as traditional or standard finance, which assumes people are rational and they optimize decisions and they make decisions within a uh, very elaborate portfolio decision-making process in which behavioral finance uh, disputes many of those claims. We're going to get into this in much more detail, but when people see these studies in behavioral finance, how are they being applied today uh, by both individual investors and understanding their own behavior better and investment advisors of various types? Well, I I think if you look, well, first of all, if you look at it on an individual basis, I think what um, 
if you understand what your mental uh, lapses are from past history, if you understand what your emotional decision-making uh, mistakes you've made, then if you can take those mistakes and then learn from them and try to say and apply a non-emotional strategy, I think that's really the best thing for individual modest investors uh, to deal with. And then on, on the flip side, I think uh, financial advisors are looking for ways to use uh, behavioral finance as a teaching tool. Uh, I think it's very good for increasing uh, financial literacy. I also think that, that even uh, the more psychology side of it starts to look at um, money behaviors, uh, financial counseling, and even uh, family financial therapy, in which you get very deep into things and you look at, for many of us, our childhood memories influence uh, our budgeting decisions and our, and our money decisions in adulthood. What are some of the influences that people have when they're growing up? And a dramatic example would be people's grandparents might have gone through the Depression, where people lost everything, made them very risk-averse. And the parents of this current generation would have basically been the baby boomers, having gone through prosperity for the most time. Uh, now we're in, if certainly not heading into a period of uh, more economic difficulty and challenge. What are the legacies of these different economic uh, uh, errors that people have gone through and how it affects their behavior. Well, I think especially now, if, if you have a, a teenager who was ready to go to college in 2008 and all of a sudden you had the financial crisis, I think for the first time that we, for the first time in a long time, this generation can be exposed to the idea of uh, depression babies that you had mentioned in the uh, 1930s. So, so the issue, though, is that what I worry about is that if people become uh, too pessimistic and too loss adverse in their or risk averse also in their overall portfolios. That at a time when they should at least be putting be putting something into the stock market, many people aren't putting anything in the stock market because they have this um, uh, uh, negative uh, depression uh, era era effect that they're feeling. But also, with what they also experience is something called anchoring. Uh, many people. Um, um, Anchor on, a, on a, either a negative situation or a positive situation. So, in the in the, the most recent environment, many people I'm concerned are currently anchoring on the financial uh, crisis. Another piece for many people is they, that are just from childhood are um, not attuned to um, investing. Is um, they have a math anxiety. So many people, I think, it's not recognized, but some people just don't like math. So especially when a, when somebody, a, a financial planner, is sitting down with a client, I think it's very important to, to figure out what type of personality that person has because some, because some, as a general population or a specific amount of people who just are very overwhelmed uh, by numbers. And I think that even inhibits the idea of people wanting to learn or increase their financial literacy. In general, when when you get your financial uh, habits from your parents, do you tend to adopt the same habits or do you tend to react to them and do the opposite? I mean, for example, if your grandparents went through a really difficult time in the Depression and you're growing up in prosperity, do you kind of think they're out of it and do the opposite of what they do or do you tend to do the same kind of thing? I think it's it's different in terms of if it's generational. I don't think it's necessarily a, a major link. I think it is it's, uh, it's really the direct relationship they see with their parents that through their childhood experiences. Uh, for instance, if if they 
if they witness their parents spending a lot of money on credit cards when they go to the supermarket or buying uh, luxury items uh, without really explaining whether they can afford these items, then um, I think that, that that can lead to possibly uh, over-consumer spending uh, versus somebody who was, who's attuned to, who's been taught very, I, I was taught during my childhood, I started investing in the stock market when I was 12 years old, and my parents were very supportive. So I think it just really depends on really, uh, I don't know about the grandparent relationship, I think it's really the, more of the, the direct siblings and the family unit w- with parents in that, in that aspect. But also, many people have very uh, negative experiences as a child uh, through divorce or people who really don't have money, that definitely has a dramatic uh, effect on, on the childhood development that they experience and how that affects them in adulthood towards uh, spending and also saving. So what kind of messages do you think are coming across today to kids, teenagers, or younger adults today uh, with the volatility we see in the markets and the financial crises? What kind of messages are being transmitted to them these days, you think? I think they, my concern is that there's a, too much of a negative tone out there, and that's why even when I, when I teach up my personal finance course, I try to show since the idea of investing for the long term, um, showing them about the power of uh, high value of money, and again, to try to, to show them that if they take a, uh, a middle ground of, um, or non-emotional strategy that over time and just try to learn to build wealth and save money and to, to uh, balance their needs with their wants, that that's a much better perspective to take than um, the, the, the last 20, 30 years in which everybody was stuck on uh, really a credit card uh, generation or two, and so hopefully, you know, and, that, and that's what I. One of the one of the positive things that I can only see about from the financial crisis is that for may, maybe for some people, it will change their behavior in a positive way, where maybe they'll start to live within their um, their standard of living, or be able to at least um, purchase things and try to say and invest. Uh, money, but do it in a way where they're doing it uh, directly linked to their income. You're still dealing with students all the time at Goucher College. Uh, what kind of perceptions do they come into the class with? And after the term is over, what kind of perceptions do they go out of that may be different based on your teachings? Um, I would think the, the one thing that I really try to emphasize to them, and uh, talking about budgets with them and talking about certain things is very uh, it, it, it doesn't always connect. But one thing that I, I, one or two things that I really try to stress is the idea of when you start to talk about their student loans and how their student loans are linked to them forever and how that really uh, connects to their credit rating, that those are the type of things that really educates them and that maybe they'll learn not to take on as much debt. The other thing is that even though retirement planning seems like a, a, a very long-term uh, prospect for them, I try to show them that that if they do at age 22, if they get a job um, after four years of coucher, that if they're offered a, a matching 401k plan, for example, that at least take advantage of that because they have a major uh, tax savings on their gross income, and also that they, um, if they have matching on on their uh, say one for dollar for dollar, that's essentially a hundred percent return from the bat. And I, I think 
from that perspective, that, that I'm hopefully will change some of the, their behavior. And also, I try to show them following a mutual fund. Um, that, that that's really be, will be the choice that they'll have in retirement fund. So those things, I think, are really at least has, has changed their uh, direction in thinking about investments a little bit more. Very good. Okay, we're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of the Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Victor Riccardi. Uh, he is an MBA. He is an assistant professor of financial management at Goucher College based in Baltimore, Maryland. Uh, he is a specialist in behavioral finance. And we're going to get into what behavioral finance can offer you in much more detail after this. We'll be back after this. Up-to-date business and financial news. Call now and get the financial information you need. 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. The experts are here. Voice America Business Network. Are you ready to go green? You've asked and we've heard you. Voice America presents the Green Talk Network. Environmental topics are at the forefront of our society, and the Green Talk Network is here to keep you up to date on the latest trends and new innovations for the eco-conscious lifestyle. We'll help promote a variety of ideas on the environment, from global warming issues to how you can become more eco-friendly in your daily activities. Be a part of the solution, not the problem. Visit the Green Talk Network page on voiceamerica.com and tune in to help spread the green. If you lead a team of any kind, you need to listen to this show. Tune in to Leading with Emotional Intelligence, hosted by Esther Orioli. Esther provides you with the tools and techniques you need to harness the power of EQ to stop setting goals and start changing behaviors in your organization. Get the latest concepts in EQ from a top-of-the-house perspective and have your questions answered on air. Leading with Emotional Intelligence is broadcast live every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Victor Riccardi. Uh, He is the Assistant Professor of Financial Management at Goucher College in Baltimore, Maryland. Uh, and he is an expert on behavioral finance. Welcome back to the show, Victor. Oh, great. What, one area that you t- spend a lot of time talking about is risk and perceptions of risk and how people deal with risk and the different kinds of risk. What are some of the risks that people deal with and how do they deal with them psychologically? Well, I guess the, the, the first uh, aspect is to think about what type of decision maker you are. Um, so some people may assess risk um, if they're analytical and they're, say, um, uh, quantitative in nature, they may look at um, risk of stock, uh, uh, risk of a mutual fund. They may look purely at the risk factors or the returns or, or the downside risk of an investment. Versus if somebody is a, I guess we could call them a, a behavioral decision maker or, or makes a lot of decisions from their gut, uh, feelings and so forth, they would... Uh, Maybe invest uh, in a stock, make a purchase for a new car based on just um, 
the uh, the affect or the emotional aspect of porn. So so that that kind of leads into uh, the the emotional or the psychology of risk deals with uh, a combination of say uh, mental processes and emotional factors. So the mental processes are, are we, when, it, when we make decisions, as I was alluding to before, uh, we use heuristics in which we're, we have so much information, we use these rules of thumb to know these heuristics to simplify and make decisions. And, and again, sometimes those decisions uh, lead to um, a, a, de- a good outcome, but other times it may lead to a bad outcome. And uh, another big piece, as I was saying, is we, we deal with positive emotions or negative emotions that also influence our decisions um, when we purchase or invest in the stock. So right now, just apply this to what's going on in the markets uh, lately. We've had extremely volatile markets, huge up days, huge down days, uh, lots and lots of money. I think something like $10 trillion is currently parked in money market funds and savings accounts and CDs and treasury bills, basically no risk but no return kind of investments. Uh, are people doing the, the logical thing to park their money in safe places, earning nothing with the volatility of the markets, or are they missing out on opportunity? I think they're missing out on opportunity. So an example would be on a on a down day, you know, a significant say two, three, four percent in the market. If they're watching a, a financial uh, a program on on TV and they see a down market. What, what that affect or that imagery they see gives them a, a negative feeling, and what that also then transpires to is that they anchor on that negative uh, that negative uh, event for that particular moment, and what that outcome leads to is that they will be less they'll be a uh, uh, risk averse. and probably that day they will because the market's down they'll wind up not investing in stocks and so that so that's how I think the negative markets may, may impact how people may make decisions on a daily or weekly basis in which that affects their mood in a negative way. That, that influences their risk-taking behavior, and that leads to a, um, a delay or a, a, a bias in not pulling the trigger to say, maybe I want to buy a stock for a particular, but I'm feeling negative that day, and that has a negative outcome there on their decision-making in that case. And does the opposite happen as well when they see a big update? They want to get in, they want to buy high and sell low in effect? Is that typically what happens emotionally? I think also that could be also, especially, in a, and again, it's, it depends on those uh, very big swings, and it also works the same way is if you're, as I was saying before, we were talking about the anchoring effect with the financial crisis, but also works the same way on a longer-range uh, bull markets or like an Internet bubble that we've had uh, say uh, either in the housing uh, bubble uh, in the or in in the last uh, in this decade earlier on, or in the internet bubble in which people uh, anchor on on the positive, uh, the stock keeps on going up, mutual funds keep on going up, so people just keep on buying and buying, and then they don't even assess their risk, or they get outside of a risk category that they should have never been into, and they wind up being overweight in stocks, and that, and that's why I think if you if you go with the basics of modern portfolio theory, I think people have been taught to invest for the long term and to diversify. However, the other part of the message is to try to figure out what risk tolerance category you are, are you in. Make sure that you have enough of a diversified portfolio along the right or, or enough different stock mutual funds, for instance, but then also rebalance that portfolio at the end of every year to stay within 
your initial asset allocation, let's say that you're, you're using to invest on a monthly basis. So are you saying that if people were to understand behavioral finance well, that they should actively go against their emotions, in effect, that when the market's down and their normal emotions would be wanting to sell, that they should go in and buy and vice versa, when the markets are rising and they're feeling positive that they should be selling? Is that kind of an active contrarian uh, outcome of what you're recommending here? I guess I'm more alluding to is if you view view it in in terms of a diversified portfolio, that um, if you're, say, investing in a retirement fund and you're you're doing, say, monthly contributions uh, based on a certain asset allocation, that establish that non-emotional strategy but and do, do it on a monthly basis. But then also, um, I'm then also making the point that people suffer from inattention bias in which they let the, those monthly contributions uh, ride and they don't do a, an adjustment to the asset allocation on a yearly basis. In terms of, of trading, uh, I'm not recommending tr- trading on moving uh, money around on a, on a daily basis. I'm viewing it more of a contest of an individual investor who is trying to build wealth over the long term. So as far as rebalancing, I mean, one way to think of rebalancing is you're selling your winners and buying what's recently been a loser uh, to uh, take some gains and, and reinvest it where it's done not as well. Is that the, the, and, and that's psychologically difficult to do. Is that the idea of rebalancing? Yeah, and that's very difficult to do. And again, it's like a poker player who just lets, you know, uh, bets 100 bucks and then makes 100 and then lets the whole $200 ride. I'm suggesting by having that pre-programmed strategy in your asset allocation uh, approach that at least you take some money off the table on a yearly basis. And again, your portfolio will never be as high as it if it would be on an upper market, but on a down, but also on a down market, when you have those corrections, you're not overly exposed. So, for instance, you know, in 1995, a portfolio that was worth $250,000 that was in a maybe in a 70% stocks and 30% bond uh, mutual fund uh, category asset allocation, if you just let that ride for that five-year period, and you got, for instance, 20% returns in the S&P 500 uh, per year. That probably that $250,000 portfolio would be close to worth $500,000. And then if you just uh, let the money ride and, and suffer through the bear market of uh, the early 2000s, you would have probably been, at, uh, you would have come back to where the original 250000 So what I'm suggesting is taking money off the table each year and reallocating and taking your gains is a far better approach, I think, for most people. Uh, but probably about 80% of the people, the academic shows, people don't make that uh, yearly adjustment to their portfolios. Because it's psychologically difficult to sell oh, your yeah. winners and buy yeah, losers, it's like, right? It's psychologically difficult, but also that they, 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 they suffer from status quo bias, they suffer from inertia, and they also suffer from inattention bias. So there's a, a realm of things going on there that's interconnected. One of the biases you talk about is overconfidence. Um, so how does one become overconfident, particularly in these kind of volatile markets, and how are you supposed to overcome overconfidence? Well, in general, what the literature shows, especially if you look at uh, comparing overconfidence and gender, that men tend to be more overconfident than women, and what a lot of the times is, uh, in, in, in general, men trade more than men, and because they trade more, their transaction costs 
eat into their overall return. And uh, uh, Terry O'Dean and Brad Barber have done a study a number of years ago that actually showed that women, since they're more, they're more analytical, they're more cautious, and they don't trade as much, that they actually got higher returns, about 1% and 1.5% per year, because they didn't trade as much and because they didn't um, experience those transaction costs. So I think that overconfidence is that leading to, to just sell out winners, as you are saying before, selling out winners uh, too early, and that overconfidence leads to more loss aversion or losses in our portfolio because we're also, because we are overconfident, we don't want to admit when uh, we've made a bad investment. So what's a better way to handle it, if you understand this? Uh, what is a better way to handle investments and not be overconfident? Uh, well, I would I would say again, not trading stocks uh, continuously, or even moving uh, moving money back and forth on, say, a monthly basis between uh, different mutual funds. And that's why I, I was alluding to before that when I'm saying diversified portfolio, I'm even talking about having enough diversity within your stock mutual funds. Uh, you know, I I, I would think that a lot of people don't have enough um, of a balance, say, between value and growth mutual funds, but also. If you then break that along the lines of small cap, mid cap, and large cap, um, and then you, if you even take that further and then you transpose that to breaking it out between passive and active in, investment philosophy, you should probably, if you have enough, depending on how much money you have, you could have, you should probably have your money in anywhere from six to, to ten different uh, stock mutual funds, and, and a lot of people just don't have that type of diversification. So you think it's better for most average investors? To do mutual funds instead of having individual stocks, um, I, I typically think that's what I that's what I typically um, teach my students or novice investors is either mutual funds or exchange uh, traded funds. And, and again, and, if, it's, if you're if you're a highly knowledgeable investor and you have the time, I certainly um, don't disagree with having uh, maybe um, a a small percentage of, of your overall money in, in stocks. Also, again, some people are very good at trading stocks, and they are um, they have a philosophy, and, and, and they do enjoy it. But, again, I just think for your, your novice uh, list, if you have novice uh, listeners or novice investors um, or intermediate investors, I think the greatest way for them to build wealth over the long term is, is putting money into a retirement account and and then building it that way. And again, even with a 401k plan, I make the point to my students that you are at least allowed, if you're worried about saving too much money, and then you want to save for a down payment on a house, that at least you could take, in many companies are allowed to take a loan against your overall retirement fund as a way to still have that down payment for a house. So I still think there's there's ways that people don't even, real, very simple, straightforward ways that where you can build wealth but also there's a concern that I'm, sa- I'm saving this money until I'm age 59 and a half, but if you look at it through that there are other options to not totally locking up your money, that there's still ways to, to still create that wealth and say still buy a house. Uh, the opposite of overconfidence is loss aversion, I guess, where people are so conservative they're really worried about losing money. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is the danger of having loss aversion take over your investment strategy? Well, the main issue with loss aversion is that you it, people view it as it's really not just an objective loss that it's, that 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 loss feels more painful than an equivalent gain, but it's also that it's an emotional loss. So people don't want to realize the loss. So, so for instance, if you have a um, if you bought a, t- a stock for um, ten thousand dollars 
and it, it has declined to $5,000. And the, the prospects of the stock are, say, that it's highly likely that it could go into bankruptcy, say, hypothetically. Most of you will still hold on, as even though the stock it, it may go down further, just because they don't want, want to take that loss. But even still... And the, the other aspect to it is that people have an affinity bias in which they feel a connection to uh, maybe a particular stock. Especially, I look at people who um, inherit a stock from somebody or an investment, or if, if, uh, if you have a, a spouse and um, the reason and one spouse dies and, and you're holding a particular stock for a company because that was the stock that the couple bought together. So there's many aspects to why people do not sell, uh, sell stocks, not just the uh, aspect of loss aversion. So, what is, again, if you realize that in advance, what's the best way to handle that? Just not be so loss averse and, and take small losses instead of letting it run away? Yes, I would take. I would sometimes say again. The the, re, the reason that you bought the investment, if if there was a particular reason why you invested in a particular mutual fund, or if the the overall financial picture of a stock has changed, uh, if the objective analysis gives you a sell signal, you you should sell. If the the conditions of the company why or the investments in the mutual fund is something that you still believe in and the reasons that you still purchase are still objectively, analytically support your your reasons for buying something, I would still purchase it. The problem is when the conditions have changed or the information have changed, people are very slow to admit that data. Indeed. Okay, we're going to take a break. This is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Victor Riccardi. He's an assistant professor of financial management at Goucher College in Baltimore, Maryland, talking about behavioral finance. We'll be back after this. markets up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now. Toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Join Patricia Raskin, the host of Positive Living on VoiceAmerica.com, Monday at 11 Pacific. This program brings you practical and inspiring principles for living a more authentic, engaging, and passionate life. Patricia's guests will give you a formula for connecting, giving, forgiving, and miraculous living. So tune in and call to Positive Living, Mondays at 11 Pacific Time, right here on VoiceAmerica.com. Leadership is a vital skill set in today's competitive global economy. Being a leader is not enough. To succeed, you must optimize your performance and know how to imbue others in your organization with leadership skills. Practical, actionable leadership insights are the focus of Leadership Development News, hosted each Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, by Kathy Greenberg and Relly Nadler on the Voice America Business Channel. Doctors Greenberg and Nadler, who coach global leaders on how to be most effective, will share their insights and contacts. The path to leadership excellence begins here. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. 
You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Victor Riccardi. He is the Assistant Professor of Financial Management at Goucher College in Baltimore, Maryland. Uh, he teaches various undergraduate courses, particularly in the field of behavioral finance. Welcome back to the show, Victor. Oh, great. We'll go to some of the other areas that you found in behavioral finance. One of them is what you call representativeness. What do you mean by that? Uh, what representativeness is is that we draw facts from things with very little information. So, for for instance, um, you know, many people draw the conclusion that uh, growth uh, growth stocks are always outperform value stocks, which is not true. Um, you go through periods in the market in which sometimes uh, maybe growth stocks will do very well for three to five years, but then you'll have a, a, a period of a year or two or three years where value investing comes back. Into play, and that's what I was trying to allude to before. Is in that diver- in that portfolio diversification, um, I don't think people even diversify enough where they have a, rep- a representative sample of, say, value stocks and growth stocks in their portfolio. And that would be a lot, a, a major reason that would be con- connected to the area of representativeness. So the solution there is to have some value stocks or funds and some growth stocks because you never know in advance which side is going to do better. Is that the idea? Exactly. Exactly. Another uh, aspect you call framing. What do you mean by framing? Well, people are influenced by how words are presented to them. So, uh, or what um, an emerging area looks at why people um, don't like to invest in annuities, and this is also connected to what's known as self-control bias. So, for instance, self-control bias deals with that people would rather consume things today rather than thinking about things for the long term. So, in an example with framing is if if you tell a client or you tell an individual investor that here I want you to invest in this annuity, and in at age 65 when you retire, it will pay you a thousand dollars per month in investment income. Um, not many people are excited about that or don't respond for it or won't invest it, make that investment. But if you frame it where you're at age 65, you'll get a thousand dollars to spend, um, to go on vacations and to, um, go on cruises, to go on fishing trips at the Gulf, then a lot more people wind up accepting that annuity, uh, investment. So that's a framing. A decision where in one frame it shows um, just a, a very straightforward uh, investment category. The other thing is if you say you give people the perception or the um, you draw out the idea of, of this is what you'll be doing with retirement money, then people are more likely to accept the annuity product. So that's a uh, and, and a reason that many people don't. Um, and allude to that also, as I was saying before, is also there's a connection with this control bias in which people would rather just consume items today or things today rather than worried about thinking about it in the long term. Another uh, aspect you call familiarity bias. Uh, what do you mean by that? And that, well, that looks at that we typically invest in 
things that we understand or that we're familiar with, or that could be familiar assets, uh, familiar investments. Uh, so, for instance, uh, many people will invest in, say, a company that they know based on the name of the company. Um, other people will, um, you know, a lot of people don't typically save for mutual funds in their asset allocation. They won't, many times they don't invest in an international fund or international markets, they would rather invest in uh, domestic stocks or domestic mutual funds because those are the familiar assets. Also, um, many employees wind up investing in familiar assets such as their employee stock of their company uh, or they overly invest in them. So th- those are um, the aspects of um, how the, the familiar aspects of, of an asset or the name of the asset, even though there there may be valid reasons for investing in a company, many people are just driven by the name of something that they know, uh, even if they were a consumer of it, that they'll just buy it and, and not do the due diligence uh, of that particular thing as an as a investment. So another way to think about it is, you know, a a uh, a, uh, a good company isn't that's essentially a good stock, and a, and a bad company with a bad reputation isn't necessarily a bad investment either. So you're saying people should overcome that familiarity bias and uh, venture into things they're not familiar with, that there'll be better returns from things that are less uh, comfortable and less familiar to people? Well, what I'm saying is that if they're unfamiliar with something, that they shouldn't just go and invest in it. But what I would do is I would investigate it where you become a little bit more familiar into it. And then if you do your due diligence and you find that it's an area that's represented in your portfolio, um, that I would I would consider definitely investing in it. You have another aspect you call the issue of perceived control. Uh, what do you mean by that? Well, there's different types of control. Um, for, for instance, many people, if they have an illusion of control, uh, many times they feel like they can, for instance, they, they invest in a mutual fund or a stock. Especially this, this behavior is very prominent uh, among uh, traders who are, if they're looking especially at a, uh, a, a screen of a, a stock going up, and many times they feel like they can control the outcome of the performance of the stock. And, or, or, and many people relate this idea of the illusion of control as the same thing as people equate with, um, say, uh, basketball, in which you have a hot hand. So people think because that um, they're able to get uh, five shots in a row that they could then also say they could pick five stocks in a row with, with this illusion or this hot hand in terms of their, their investing. And, and that, again, is a misperception, as you're saying. That they should yes, not base on the future on what just happened in the recent past. Yes. So again, and then typically, you know, the next basketball shot and the next stock really have no connection to each other. It's just a uh, the the perception that they're related is how people then make a, uh, additional uh, decisions to say keep on buying the same investment and buy more more of it, especially in a bubble situation. You also have a whole section of research about the effect of. Affect or feelings, as you call it. How do people's feelings affect uh, the financial decisions they make? Well, I, and this is where I, I think you can look at the, the negative aspects of feelings and the positive aspects of feelings. So, for instance, uh, the the negative aspects of feelings um, 
in many cases, uh, even based on gender and based on other, other aspects, also back to the childhood development, if we have very negative experiences with money, um, we tend, many people have a, a denial about it where they don't want to face their uh, feelings about money, or many of us will, be, will wind up just um, al- allocating our investment decisions or financial decisions um, to other people. So, and I think what, what's, so for instance, uh, to illustrate uh, the idea of, say, something like trust or mistrust with, with the control issue that we were just talking about, I think a lot of times there's, a, for novice investors, um, they have to decide on what degree of involvement that they have with their investments if they go see a financial planner. Many people, um, if they're, they're too controlling about their investments, um, they may have trust issues in which they never will listen to, they, they have a very great deal of resistance to listen, to listen to what the financial planner tells them. However, if they're too trusting uh, on the upside, and they give too much control over to the financial planner to make the decision, that, that's not always a good decision either because that, then that person may be making all the financial decisions for them. So I think there's a link between, say, uh, different um, uh, behavioral issues. On the, on the upside, it's a classic example is, is that on that, when I was talking about behavioral decision-making in which people make decisions, there's just some people who make Decisions from their their gut, in which um, you know they, they buy they buy a, a company that they're familiar with. So there's you could connect say something like a, a name that they're familiar with, and they buy the stock. I, I, there's a number of studies, for instance, that show if if you give uh, uh, two groups um, the same financial information, and you put the name of the company, and and you give them another sample and you leave out the name of the company, however you give them exactly the same information, people are more likely to invest and also perceive less risk because they just see the name of the company. So that's where something where that emotional aspect of the familiar asset also influences their decision-making, and they ignore, say, the objective information. There are people out there who, who uh, watch very carefully investor sentiment, would be called. They're... they're following newsletter writers' optimism or uh, put-call ratios. There's all kinds of ways of measuring uh, optimism and pessimism. And usually what they're saying is um, it's a contrary indicator. When everybody's very pessimistic, it's a time to buy. And when everybody's optimistic, it's a time to sell. Um, does that kind of prove out in your research as well, that the same kind of emotional peaks and valleys are lead to good times to buy and sell? Oh, yeah. I mean, again, it's also, you know, if you're talking about contrarian investing, it's very hard uh, to go against the crowd, especially when the crowd is driving things for, say, a three- to five-year period in which, you know, so again, then, so in a bubble situation, uh, back to that 1990s bubble, again, for the longest time, I remember attending conferences and during that time period where everybody was talking about that, Growth investing is the only way to go, and value investing was dead. And I remember just uh, witnessing the value portfolio manager saying, you know, this, this, that this is the way to invest. And eventually what happens is, again, back to the whole idea of cycles, eventually things, certain ways of investing wind up coming back in favor. I can remember for the longest time, if you look at from 19, early 1980s, 
to, to up to 2000s, gold did not do anything. Gold was probably a lower performer than treasury bills. However, because the last five years ago, so gold came, came back into being a, a, a hot investment item. Problem okay. is when people start all getting into that type of situation. Okay, we have to take another break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of the Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Victor Riccardi. He's an assistant professor of financial management at Goucher College in Baltimore, Maryland, specializing in behavioral finance. We'll be back after this. the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Intense and intelligent. Catch Kevin, unscripted and uncensored, keeps you informed of the ideological, theological, and economic war being waged against the United States of America. Kevin Lehman's bold and brilliant style challenges your deepest held beliefs and provokes you to ask the hard questions, religious, scientific, political, or financial. Kevin is holding the establishment's feet to the fire with high-profile guests that include politicians, economists, theologians, and business titans. He'll demand truth over tradition and facts over fiction. Full of passion, wisdom, and wit, Kevin's transparent and no-nonsense style make Catch Kevin unscripted and uncensored. The go-to show for real insight on business, politics, social issues, and breaking news. It's time to get real, America. It's time to tackle the tough issues head on. Tune in to Catch Kevin, unscripted and uncensored, Mondays at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Business Channel. If you are looking for creative ways to improve your bottom line, tune in to Make Your Move with Alan and Brian Bolio. Their proven track record of helping businesses enhance their profitability will provide the basis for a forum about actionable items based on a business person's perspective. The program will be business talk, but with an economic context, so you'll know how to stay ahead of the game. Make Your Move is broadcast live every Monday afternoon at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Victor Riccardi, Assistant Professor of Financial Management at Goucher College in Baltimore, Maryland. Uh, he is an expert in behavioral finance. Welcome back to the show, Victor. Uh, thanks. I'd like to get a little bit of your sense of the role of the 2008 financial crisis and how that has affected risk-taking behavior. And it seems like we're going through something similar now. How do you think it's going to affect risk-taking behavior going forward? Well, I guess the way I look at it is also you need to look at the the cause of it. I think um, you know if you if you look at many of the 
a major part of why the financial crisis happened was because we were so dependent on these uh, deep quantitative models that are, that are based on what we talked about in the early part of the conversation, known as traditional uh, finance, in which these models do function very well in a normal market. However, what's missing from many of the models or the classical decision-making uh, uh, related to uh, finance is, is the, the events that are outliers, and those models don't function that well. So, so I, I would think because historically, if you look at it from financial history, that the, um, it typically takes probably anywhere from five to ten years to truly get a recovery after the type of um, debt crisis and highly leveraged situation that we have. So, so I think we're going to be continuing with this for at least another um, three to four years like this in terms of this type of environment. So what uh, is the impact I, of that both on individual consumers, investors, and the economy? If people are very risk-averse, um, it, does it starve capital to uh, younger more risky-oriented companies, and then so that's from the company's point of view, and then from the individual's point of view, if their money is sitting in CDs and money market funds earning zero, their money is not growing at all, how is that going to affect uh, what they've got for retirement? Well, I guess the two things, that is, I would still, um, and I guess to also uh, look at the full picture of people's net worth. Um, if, if people are, especially um, younger viewers, who are, listeners, who, are, who have a... Um, a lot of student loan debt, if they're paying 5 to 6% on that, and you know that you're, you're, you're concerned that you're not going to, you know, if you look at the last 10 years, the rate of returns even in the stock market are 5%, 5%. So people who have a lot of student loan debt, I would go through a period of even paying down additional debt, but also I would still, again, back to the idea of if you have a retirement account at work, Still balancing that off with putting something away for retirement, and you know um, I'm a big believer in what's known as reversion to the mean, where where eventually everything does come back over time to an average. So um, you know, late 90s we had above average returns of 15, 20 percent. The last, if you look at the last uh, five years, if, if average returns were five percent, that's so. Some, uh, at some point, we'll get in the next few years to, to just getting a stock market or an average or a portfolio that will be back to a historical average of 8 to 10% in stocks over the long term. And I still think that's why you should still uh, keep on what, you know, if people are still putting money through their uh, monthly investing from their retirement account, say, or, in, or, or using an IRA, I would still just keep on, uh, I know it's hard to make that commitment, but keep on putting money into the market in a diversified portfolio. So you're saying going forward from here, we've, we've had pretty low returns in stocks for quite a while, uh, that this is the end of that cycle and we're going to start getting above average returns, 8 to 10% uh, going well, forward. You don't know the exact timing, but basically uh, that, that's what's likely to happen. I think so. And again, also even uh, real estate um, uh, people don't think in terms. People think um, so. So here, back to the what people are influenced by is having an aversion, say, to real estate right now too. People think of the housing market. Um, there, there are there are plenty. Uh, there are mutual funds and ETFs that invest in say um, 
very good uh, office property, rental properties. So there, there are other things to look at if, that you can still invest in that will at least get you um, eight to ten percent. And and I'm not saying that we're not going to have a we may not have a down market in coming years, you know, in certain instances. But but as time goes on, you would still think that historically stocks have still outperformed most asset classes. Now, particularly with what's happened lately, where uh, bonds have done extremely well because of all the risk aversion, people putting money into bonds, pushing down yields, up raising bond prices, is it? to the level now where you think that bonds have more risk than stocks because they've moved up so much and stocks have gone down? I mean, my my main concern is that at some point inflation is going to uh, come around again. And if you're if you're overly exposed in, even, you know, in bonds, then I wouldn't be relying on uh, bond returns, especially uh, initially at some point the Federal Reserve is going to have to start raising um, interest rates again. So locking to bonds at a very low rate currently, I just I would be very averse to that myself. How, how do people react to inflation uh, as investors and consumers when they see it? Right now, officially, there's not much inflation, although it seems like prices are rising, commodities and other things. But what what is the behavioral finance uh, view of inflation and how investors and consumers react to it? Um, I would I would guess that they they Especially that um, if they're, that in, in some cases it depends on the particular products that they're purchasing. But um, you know, again, if, on the investment side, I would say people wind up if, if they hear inflation or if they're starting to feel inflation on the investment side. Then you've even seen a little bit of it in the last couple of years, where, where people are herding into gold too much. I mean, I, you, you have to look at it that I, I don't view gold. As necessarily investment, I think it's a hedge for for protecting your overall standard of living or protecting the value the value of your overall uh, portfolio. But you can see that there uh, what the concern is, especially that if there's a bubble in gold um, at this point, I believe it's about seventeen hundred dollars an ounce, which is very high compared to where it was uh, a few months ago. I mean, a few years ago. In about a minute or so we have left, why don't you just kind of sum up how people uh, learning about behavioral finance can make them better investors uh, in today's market? I just think that look at it as uh, behavioral finance will hopefully help identify um, your emotional pitfalls, uh, the negative feelings that you experience, and learn from those mistakes and try to adhere to and, and then to figure out a non-emotional strategy, and that's at least my perspective from an academic. Um, trainers may take a different perspective, but, but I think for novice investors, just understanding a, a way of how, um, you know, typically we don't act how the textbooks want us to, but hopefully behavioral finance will help identify the mental mistakes and the, your emotional pitfalls to act the way you should act and, and then find that non-emotional portfolio. Thank you so much. My guest has been uh, Victor Riccardi. Uh, He's an assistant professor of financial management at Goucher College in Baltimore, Maryland. Uh, Clearly an expert on the whole area of behavioral finance. Thanks so much for being a guest on the Money Answer Show, Victor. Thanks for having me. Anytime. And thanks again, and we'll be back with another edition of the Money Answer Show next week. Goodbye for now.
Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and the Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business.